Just to let you know uh, where we are heading uh, over the next few weeks or months, really, um, I said earlier when we started Matthew's Gospel, we'll be doing it in sections, in uh, bite-sized chunks. Uh, we come today to the end of that first chunk, um, and we'll pick up the Sermon on the Mount from Chapter 5 um, after Easter later this year. Uh, for the next three weeks, starting next week, I've asked Nat to preach, um, he's going to preach three messages on one sentence. Uh, yes, uh, the opening sentence of, or the opening passage of Ephesians 1 in the Greek, verses 3 to 14, is all one sentence. Um, so I trust that will be a rich blessing to us all, and it will be to Nat, I hope and trust too, in uh, preparing and preaching uh, for that little series. Then we're going to be doing a larger series leading up to Easter on the person and work of Christ. I thought it would be a good way to uh, head towards the cross. Uh, we're going to be um, doing a series based on a book by Alastair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson, a couple of good Scottish fellows um, who have ministered in various places, um, called Name Above All Names. Get the book if you like. It'll be worth a read. Uh, for now, though, if you've got your Bibles there, open up to our passage in Matthew 4, and you might like to keep a thumb in Isaiah as well. In my Bible, Matthew 4, verse 12, uh, has a little heading, Jesus Begins His Ministry. Uh, but as I've said before, these bold headings and the big numbers in our Bibles, they're not part of inspired scripture, are they? Um, they might be helpful. Um, and this is the beginning of Jesus' more public ministry as rabbi or teacher of disciples and his public preaching begins and his ministering to the people, healing them. Um, but as we heard last week, Jesus' ministry has already begun, hasn't it? He's already been serving us and living for us in his righteousness both in his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. Uh, but the arrest of John the Baptist, as Matthew records it here, and Jesus therefore leaving Nazareth um, and heading to Capernaum in the land to the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali uh, is a significant moment in Matthew's Gospel. Nazareth is in the northern area of Israel, 100 kilometres or so north of Bethlehem in Judea. Galilee is a little bit further north still in the northernmost part of Israel, above Samaria, just below Syria. It's a region, if you like, on the top edge of Israel. And therefore it's a region with neighbours. There's no sea there. There's other nations. They have neighbouring nations who are not part of God's chosen people. Neighbours with different gods. Neighbours with a different culture. Neighbours with different values and different ethics. You might have neighbours like that yourself. Some would think maybe living up there then, so close to the other nations, to the world, is a dangerous place to be. Fearful, especially if you're raising kids, you don't want them to get too much of this external influence coming their way. But others, on the other hand, might consider it a wonderful place to live. What an opportunity to share the blessing and the goodness and grace of the God that we know with these neighbours who don't know him wonder which way you think about your neighbours and other nations and the world. It's fair to say the dotted lines on our maps or the fences around our properties, of which there weren't many in Jesus' day, they don't stop those influences coming and going, do they? They don't keep that of the, our neighbours, the other nations, out from Israel, but nor do they keep the influence and blessings of Israel in they were never meant to, actually, quite the opposite. 
Israel was chosen and to be a nation under the Lord, under Yahweh, to be a blessing to the nations. They were never to be keep it all to themselves. Sadly, though, I think it would be fair to say for Galilee and for much of the north and eventually to the south as well, they were a bit of a mixed bag, weren't they? They had let the influence of the other nations come into their land, into their culture, into their worship, into their own ethics. And there was far more influence from outside, sadly, than there was from the inside going out. Uh, Galilee, I think would be fair and accurate to say, had become very much a dark place. More of that in a moment. You wouldn't know it uh, looking at your Bibles, but if you have a look between verse 11 and verse 12 of chapter 4, there's about a whole year of Jesus' life that's gone just like that, from his baptism and the temptation uh, to this time when he hears of John the Baptist's arrest and he moves to Capernaum. Uh, You can read more about those events in um, the early chapters of John's Gospel. And in Luke 4, we hear a little bit more about why Jesus left Nazareth where he would normally, in Nazareth, go to the synagogue. As you might recall on one occasion, you will recall it when I read it, I think, he was given the scroll of Isaiah to read. And this is what he read. He opened up to this place. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus read that, but he did a little bit more than just read it. He rolled the scroll back up, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, the posture assumed for teaching back then, and everybody's eyes were upon him. At which point he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm the Lord's anointed one that Isaiah prophesied all those years ago. I am the one who's come to proclaim liberty to the captives, to make the blind see, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. I'm here before your very eyes. And they marvelled at him and his gracious words, Luke tells us. They spoke well of him for a moment Until, that is, he said to them in the end, they would put him to the test and ultimately they would reject him. That got their attention in a whole different way and his prediction was fulfilled that very instant as they turned on him, filled with wrath, drove him out of Nazareth towards the top of a cliff so they could throw him off it. But, Luke tells us, Jesus passed through their midst and went away. Just like that. He had a place to go. He had a purpose to be about Galilee. And no thought of man, no scheme of man was going to stop the plan of God, no matter how determined they might have been. And so as Matthew explains to us in the chapter before us, all this happened to fulfill the scriptures. This is not just a knee-jerk reaction. Jesus says, right, I've had it with you guys. I'm out of here. No, this is all fulfilling the scriptures. It's not just news of John the Baptist being arrested. Jesus says, right, things are getting a bit tough. I'm going to move out. It's not what it's about at all. God's got a plan here from the very beginning. Nothing is going to get in the way. It's been determined centuries earlier 
before the foundation of the earth. This is how the light of God comes and shines in the darkness. Even to a place like Galilee, a land dwelling in the shadow of death, just as the prophet Isaiah foretold. The land of Zebulun, verse 15 of Matthew 4, it's the quote. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, Could you believe it? Whatever dark places you know about, your neighbourhood, school, your workplace, maybe the heart, your heart, someone else's, that the light of God might shine into that place and bring life and healing and liberty. That's what God's about. The people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death On them a light has dawned. If those in Nazareth, those thinking that they dwell in the light, they've got it all together, they're liberty, they're they're free. If they're not going to receive the light of the world, then the light of the world is going to go further and deeper into the darkness and shine that light and bring light and liberty to anyone who will hear it and see it. And those verses from Isaiah, we heard some of them read uh, for us. They actually come just before some others that we know probably uh, reasonably well as well. Like verse 6, we had it read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. When do we read that? Only Christmas time. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's the one that Nazareth has rejected, about to throw him off a cliff. He's the one the world rejects when they fail to recognise Jesus as the Son of God, as the Lord's anointed. But a little bit like a little child who squeezes their eyes shut or hides and says, you can't see me. Just because the world doesn't want to see Jesus as the Son of God doesn't mean he's not. He's still there. He's still the Son of God. He's still the light of the world. Just because we call light darkness and darkness light doesn't change the truth of the light of the glory of God nor the darkness of this world. And if you can bear with a little more history and context this morning, because it's important, a little further back in Isaiah, the first couple of verses just before Isaiah 9, where Matthew quotes here, tells about the darkness that this light shines into. Behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. It's speaking about Israel, the northern kingdom, the area known in the New Testament as Galilee and Samaria. Galilee is a part of it. The tribes and nations of Zebulun and Naphtali, they've refused to turn to God. They've got Assyria breathing down their neck. They want some help from little brother Judah down the hill. and said, if you don't help us, we're going to get you in the neck. And they're looking to other nations to help them rather than looking to God. But Assyria, the ones breathing down their neck, we learn through Isaiah and the other prophets, they're not only a rogue and ruthless nation out to get Israel. Assyria is actually a tool. They're an instrument of God's own wrath, the hand of God against Israel. Assyria is the means through which the Lord will use to judge his people. We may well, and it might be right to fear a little or a lot, our worldly neighbours, 
godless culture that it might influence our children. But we'd better fear God more than that. Because those neighbours may just, just as well be his way of handing us over to our own sin and dark hearts. I don't say that lightly, nor with a view just to make us tremble without hope. But I say it because this is how actually the light of God comes and shines in the darkness, exposing and revealing our own idolatry and our faithlessness. Reading something this week and says, yeah, we might have a confessional faith. We trust God. We say we trust God. But what about our practical faith? There's a lot of Christians who live a practical atheism, it was saying. That is, yes, I believe the scriptures, but the way I live doesn't actually show that I trust God with my life, with my job, with my family. It's true. That's where Israel were. But the light shines into that darkness, reveals what's happening in the darkness. And that's a good thing, even when it's a hard thing. Because it comes and cleans us out, exposing what needs to be exposed. God enters in. And as Jesus proclaims here, just as John the Baptist did, now's the time to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, in Isaiah 6, just before this quote, we have the vision and call, or Isaiah's vision of the Lord, holy, holy, holy. And he's called into ministry. Here I am. Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling in a dark place, people of unclean lips. He's cleansed, his guilt, his sin, atoned for, a seraph's coal. And the Lord sends him off into ministry, just like every good Bible college graduate will go into. Is that right, Nat? You're going to go into ministry and guess what? Your church is going to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle and dwindle down to 10% of what it was when you started. How good would that be? (laughs) Successful church planter. But that's what Isaiah is given to do. And then even then that 10% is going to dwindle down to nothing but a stump. And Isaiah and King Ahaz of Judea, Judah, hearing this, and he's given a promise, a sign from God. I won't ask the Lord for a sign. Well, the Lord's going to give you a sign. What's the sign? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. God with us. And then Isaiah speaks of the coming invasion. The Lord spoke to me again because this people had refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep up into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land. O Emmanuel. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us, with that promise, actually comes the promise of Assyria coming to take Israel. That's the result of Emmanuel. Should be a word of comfort. We, we often think of that Christmas time. God with us, how good that is. He's coming in the flesh. And it is. It's great comfort. But for Israel at the time, that sign was actually, the sign was given to Judah, but for Israel it was God's judgment on his own people. There's a cry there. Oh, Emmanuel. There's a little bit of determined hope and assurance. Why did I flick my page? I shouldn't have. 
just after that word of judgment. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries, you who are going to come and try to take us down. Strap on your armour and be shattered. Strap on your armour and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, because or for Emmanuel, God is with us. So there's this deep confidence and assurance that it doesn't matter what happens, God is with us and we will not be broken. And maybe that's a little bit presumptuous and misplaced for some of them if they just think, oh, well, we're God's people, it's all okay. Now God is saying, unless you turn to me with all your heart, it won't be okay. You'll be whittled down to just this remnant, but there will always be a remnant. And those days of judgment are dark and gloomy. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold, what will there be? Nothing but distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Fear of the Lord, sorry, Emmanuel, God is with us, should actually put the fear of the Lord in our hearts. Literally. It should cause us to do the very thing John the Baptist and Jesus here calls the people to do. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember a couple of weeks ago, the axe is ready, laid at the root of the tree. His winnowing fork in his hand, yes, he gathers but he's also clearing the threshing floor, burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. Spurgeon, in his sermons on the Psalms, reminds us as he gets to Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. Very simple, Psalm 22 comes before Psalm 23. If you know them, Spurgeon says there are no green pastures for the shepherd to lead us into before the cry of abandonment of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet you might be thinking, but Ray, last week you spoke about this great security, this great comfort and encouragement of being secure in our sonship. How can we be secure in sonship when the very word Emmanuel, God with us, is actually meant to bring the fear of God into our hearts? How can, how can Judah be secure? with Assyria and even their own brethren in the north breathing down their neck? How can the living, holy God dwell with sinful men, God with us, sinful men and women? How can the Holy Father adopt us into his family and we be secure in that, in our own sonship, when we know there's actually darkness, not just out there across the fence in our neighbouring nations and our culture, You might be able to protect your kids from some of that, but you can't protect them from the darkness in their own hearts. But you can share the gospel with them. How can any of that be? Because of the grace of God? Because of his mercy? Because of his covenant love? Someone prayed about that earlier as we gave thanks to God, his covenant faithfulness. He's made a promise and he will not lay down. He will not let go of that promise. Because when he comes and calls us and adopts us as his own, when he enters into the dark place, Zebulun, Naphtali, the heart of Rabel, and anyone else, 
he actually comes and he absorbs all the darkness as he shines his light into it. He bears the darkness of sin. And he shines the light of his glory and grace into our hearts. Because those words in chapter 9 that we had read in Matthew, or those words from Isaiah 8, the darkness, the anguish and the gloom, are followed immediately with a but. Or I think Antheus had a nevertheless. And this is the significant point of transition in Isaiah. It's the point Matthew picks up from here. From the former time to the latter time. From doom and gloom to hope and restoration. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. They were the ones he was bringing his judgment upon. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Zebulun and Naphtali, they were the two most northern tribes of Israel. They were the ones with those neighbours and the culture and everything happening. They were also the first ones to get the wrath of Assyria because they were the gateway into Israel coming down from the north. And so their darkness and gloom was large indeed, deep and dark. Not just Assyria breathing down their neck, but their own sin, their own unfaithfulness, and therefore the hand of God against them. But, says Isaiah, it's into that darkness and gloom. God comes and shines his great light, the light of his glory and his grace. No matter how dark you think your heart might be, that darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. How is that land so dark? Made great and glorious, the way to the sea in Galilee, this backwater place. They've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them has light shone, on them a light has dawned. Again, someone prayed it this morning. There's a new day, new mercies, a new dawn. And that light is Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The coming King of the kingdom of heaven. The light of Emmanuel. He comes not in judgment against God's people this time, at least not against Israel, not against Judah. Actually, he's the one who bears the judgment. The light comes into the darkness and he bears the judgment that that darkness deserves. He comes in saving grace to seek and save the lost. To bear the wrath of God and to bring us out of darkness into his marvellous light. He comes bringing full redemption taking the burden of sin and guilt off our shoulders. Did you hear that in Isaiah? The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, God's be you've broken. And instead, Jesus says, take my yoke, not the yoke of the nations, not the yoke of your sin, not the yoke of my, take my yoke upon you. In the context there, if you look at that passage where Jesus offers that, come to me. It's the yoke of sonship, of knowing the Father, trusting the Father in all things. 
of walking alongside with the Father, even into the darkness of the cross. We've seen it in Jesus' baptism. He went down into the waters, didn't he? Into those depths. And he rises up out of them and is anointed by the Spirit. We see it in the wilderness. He goes out to the dry and barren place, led by the Spirit, facing the evil one for us. But resists him and tells him to be gone, trusting his Father. And he's ministered to by angels. And then we see it in the cross, don't we? Where Jesus entered into the deepest darkness of all, bearing all the weight of the sin of the world. And in that dark hour when not even the sun could shine, and he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I could enjoy the green pastures and the still waters of Psalm 23, the light of his glory and grace. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's light dawning. John preached it. Jesus preaches it. That's the pathway. That's He's the gate, the narrow gate into those pastures, those green pastures. Salvation is dawning. Redemption is drawing near. It's within your reach. In fact, what I want, to sh- want us to go away with today is actually it's not just within our reach. Salvation comes to us in the person of Jesus. He comes to you. Don't have to grasp it. Don't have to reach. He actually comes and reaches out to us in the darkness. Hasn't that been your experience? Can you think back to the day he first came to you? Maybe a little bit like it was for Adam and Eve, that first dark day of sin when he came to them. He came walking in the garden that he'd given them and he called out to them. What did he call? Where are you? He came to them. Seeking, searching, looking for the lost, looking for those who are now hiding in the darkness because of sin. Where were you when the Father first came to you and called your name? Maybe you were hiding too. Maybe you didn't really want to respond straight away and you wanted to keep hiding certain things. And there was probably some fear as Emmanuel, God with us, he drew near to you with that light shining into the dark recesses of your life and your heart. But then as you realise he actually came in mercy and grace and with forgiveness, when you heard of the cross and the light of God, rather than fear, there was surprise and joy and sheer relief as you felt the guilt of your sin and the shame of it all be washed away. And when you heard him first say to you, will you follow me? Maybe you've never heard those words. 
Maybe you've never heard the Father or His Son, Jesus, or the Spirit say, won't you come? The light's dawning. Come, follow me. Can I encourage you this morning, don't close the shutters. Don't pull down the blinds on the light of God. We're going to sing a song that Wayne's chosen, Psalm 23, just so happens to be. We didn't even talk about it. It's because there's a shadow of darkness, shadow of death here in the passage. But the version we're singing, Don Priest, who wrote it, I remember him telling the story as a teacher one day. He walked into a room and he saw a lad there who was about to do himself in. And he shared a bit with Don and Don shared with him. And he said to the lad, did the sun come up this morning? Yeah. He said, well, if the sun's come up, there's got to be a new day. There's got to be some purpose to live today, doesn't there? There's a new day dawning. Just that simple thing, part of God's creation, his mercies, new. Turn that life around that day. Maybe you have known that joy. Maybe you can remember when the Father first said, follow me, when Jesus said that to you. But maybe it feels like a long time ago and you're starting to forget. Maybe you've let some of the darkness creep back in or you're messing around with the edges of it a little bit again and you wonder whether you can actually really be part of God's family, but really be a child of light. Maybe you've lost the joy of salvation. Fair bit of darkness and gloom in the world today and it's creeping into the church, isn't it? I was chatting with a guy last week, he's a believer, hasn't gone to church for a long, long time. Doesn't agree with a lot of the politics, fair enough. He was chatting with another pastor, he's just depressed. He says, not a lot of joy when I meet Christians. And I think, yeah, interesting insight. Have we lost the joy of our salvation? Have we forgotten what it is to wake up to a new dawn every day in the new mercies of God? Struggling to see the light of God shining in the darkness that is around us. And we struggle with, like I said, sometimes a wet blanket of gloom over our own hearts, isn't there? And so we need to pray ourselves and for one another and for our world asking the Father that he might once again, as David prayed in the midst of his sin and confession, would you restore to me, Lord, the joy of my salvation? Because then when I know that and when I know my sin and my guilt has all been dealt with, no matter how dark, and it was for David, wasn't it? Then I'll tell the brothers, I'll tell others of your mercy and grace. I'll speak your name in the congregation. So take heart, no matter how dark, no matter how bruised and battered you feel. God won't break a bruised reed. In fact, he's promised, if you've got a broken and contrite heart, guess what? You're ripe for the grace of God. He will uphold you with a willing spirit. So ask him to shine the light of his glory and grace into your heart. Simon, Peter and Andrew, James and John, 
They heard those words, follow me. They left their fishing. They left their boat. They did get out of the boat. Sometimes we've got to leave some things behind, don't we? To follow Jesus. I had another little bit to share, which was actually the, all about the title of this place, but maybe you can talk to me about that over the picnic. Friends, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We cannot lift ourselves up out of our own miry clay. We can't shine light in the darkness and gloom. Christ can, and he has. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ who says to you and to me repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he doesn't leave it there he says follow me follow me as he delivers us out of darkness and has transferred us he's already done it into the kingdom of his beloved son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you, in your mercy and grace, shine once more brightly into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of your dear son, Jesus Christ. And may we, whom you've called and made to be children of light, would you encourage and enable us to let our light shine, as we're going to hear in coming weeks, which is in fact the very light of Christ, so that we might smell and taste and shine with the very light and fragrance of Christ, so that others might see our good works and give glory to you, our Father. And Father, if there are any here who have not yet heard or responded to your call to follow Jesus, who have not yet been rescued out of darkness and brought into that marvellous light of Christ, would you this morning speak tenderly to them? Maybe you already have. And may they respond in repentance and faith and thanksgiving for the salvation that you have won for them and for us all in your dear Son in whose name we pray. Amen.